Now, I am going to give you an option here. Uh, this sermon's going to go about 30 minutes, so we're going to end at 12, so I'm going to finish my sermon at 12.30, and then there's some important things we need to do that will last 10 or 15 more minutes. But again, I realize that some of you have children, you have to attend to appointments, jobs, whatever, so if you need to leave at 12.30, you can, but there are some important things coming at 12.30, but I am going to preach the word of the Lord, and I'm not going to cut it short, so... Um, Anyway, I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verses 5 and 6, and then 12 through 18. Starting with 5 and 6. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Verse 12, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away when he came down from Mount Sinai and his face shone. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains where the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away, is the veil taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, or as it says in the King James, from glory to glory, which come. In, into his image, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In this text, Paul, doing what he often had to do, he had to defend himself against Judaizers or Jewish Christians who said, you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You have to uh, adhere to Jewish ritual and Jewish law. And you have to, the only way you can become a Christian is you have to obey the law of Moses first. So Paul defends himself. And the completion of his defense is when he comes to verse 6, when he says this, The letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Can't you imagine it made their jaws, the Judaizers' jaws, drop to the ground? Because the law was the greatest thing. The law was from Moses, it was from God. And here's Paul going, the, spirit of the, 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 the letter of the law kills. And so, to them, this was a remarkable statement. Paul's saying that trying to fulfill the demands of the law will kill you, kill your spiritual life, kill any chance of a real relationship with God. Why would he say that? Because the law only works for your salvation if you are perfect. Anybody here qualify? No one, absolutely no one has ever or will ever keep God's law perfectly except for Jesus Christ. Trying to be perfect is about one of the most awful ways you can make yourself miserable. And you know why? First, you can't. Very simple. Second, it will exhaust you trying to do something you can't. Third, you usually end up either lying to yourself or lying to others about how good you are since you can't. And fourth, the law 
and the impossibility of keeping it will drive you to despair. What Paul, because this happened, if you don't, if you don't believe me, read Romans 7, where Paul talks about how he tried to save himself by law, and it broke him. Oh, wretched man that I am. Do you remember that? You see, the law is a good thing if it doesn't have to save you. The law is a good thing if it doesn't have to create a relationship with a perfect God. The law is a great guideline for living, but the law is a terrible Savior. You cannot save yourselves by law. That's what Paul's getting at. In fact, Paul called the law in today's text in verse 9 a ministry of condemnation. J.B. Phillips, a famous New Testament translator and author, wrote, Like many others, I found myself something of a perfectionist. And if we perfectionists don't watch ourselves with this obsession, we can make ourselves arrogantly critical of other people or desperately critical of ourselves. It's no wonder Phillips suffered from clinical depression. And when the depression hit, the center of it was always feelings of condemnation, not being good enough, self-hatred. The law does that. Sounds like Romans 7, doesn't it? There are two great ironies about legalism or living by the law. The first is this. The more we try to live by the law in order to be acceptable to God, the less we change and the more we fake it. Because failure to keep the law produces shame and guilt. And shame and guilt produces isolation and secrecy. And I got news for you. Sin grows best in isolation and secrecy. Germs grow best in the dark. The law or our failure to keep the law often sets up a negative cycle that causes us, ironically, to disobey the law even more. Now, the other irony of the law and those who live by it is that the law causes people to miss the main point of the law. If you live by law, often you miss its main point. The main point of the law is it was designed to drive us to God and drive us to His mercy. But the law, Paul says, at least the way Israel and the Pharisees handled it, created a veil over people's hearts and caused them to focus not on God, but the way they interpreted the law caused them to focus on the law and on spiritual rituals and on religious trivia instead of God. The law created a religion that insulated people from God instead of a spirituality that connected people to God. Take the Pharisees, for instance. They had a rule for everything. Yet when the Son of God, when God incarnate actually showed up, what did they do? They killed Him. They murdered Him. They totally missed God operating in their midst because they couldn't take their eyes off the law. The main point of the law was to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Instead, the Pharisees focused on stuff hardly worth thinking about. Or take Paul himself before Christ saved him. He said, I was a Jew's Jew. I was a Hebrew's Hebrew. I did everything a good Jew was supposed to do, including, by definition, I kept the law. Yet, he was killing innocent people God loved in the name of God. He was blind. The veil of the law blinded him, he said. His use of the law blinded him from the God who wrote the law. That is irony. When something God gives you blocks you from God. 
And in the end, the law and our attempts to satisfy it ends up being a lifelong self-improvement project that never produces real self-improvement. We work to save ourselves and keep ourselves saved only to fail miserably again and again and again. And after you fail enough, that makes you cynical or afraid of God or afraid of judgment. And when you are afraid of God and afraid of judgment and guilty and shame-ridden, that keeps us distanced from God and excluded from God. The God, ironically, we're trying to satisfy. Salvation by the law backfires all the time. It doesn't work, Paul said. The letter of the law kills. Real spirituality, folks, is not about perfection. It's about connection. Real spirituality is not about how competent we are. It's about how intimate with God we are. It's about giving up perfection and seeking Jesus Christ and allowing His Spirit to work in us. Because Paul says this, It is the Spirit, not the law, that gives life. It is the Spirit, not the law, that changes us. The law failed for one reason, because it tries to change us from the outside in. But the Spirit works from the inside out. Jesus came to change our hearts, not just change external behavior. Because the goal of the Holy Spirit is not to help us do good. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to help us be good. To make goodness a part of our nature. Our deepest motives, our character, our heart and soul. Real holiness comes from the inside out, people. The first job of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, told us in John, He said, When the Holy Spirit comes, He will reveal me to you. He will make me real to you and present to you. The main work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the presence of Jesus Christ. You will feel God when the Spirit's working. Unmistakably God. And the second job of the Holy Spirit is to make us like the one He is revealing. To make us like Jesus. To make the love of Christ tangible in our hearts. To pour into our hearts what is in Jesus' heart. And that love sets our souls on fire. And when our souls are set on fire, that changes us. When we love Jesus with all our hearts, we love the sins of the world and our sins so much less. You don't want to defeat sin? Quit trying to get rid of sin. Love something more than your sin. We become consumed by love for God and neighbor. We desire to, to place the one who loves us, to, 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 to please the one who loves us so much. We desire to treat others as tr- Christ is treating us. By the way, that's the heart of holiness. You want to know holiness? It is Jesus loving people through us. It is loving the way Jesus loves through us. When the Spirit fills us with the love of Christ, everything else in this world fades into the background. The center of who we are becomes different. And all of this happens, Paul says, not because we try hard. Not by law. Not by self-effort. It happens only when the Spirit is working in us. As one writer put it, there's a world of difference between relating to God through systems of doctrines, codes of conduct, inherited traditions, and institutional powers. That, by the way, is law. And here's the difference between law and spirit. 
Because in spirit, we relate to God directly, soul to soul, mind to mind, heart to heart. That is the work of the Spirit. When we, as Paul says, through unveiled faces, we now can look at and reflect the glory of God because the Spirit shows us the glory of God. And what's the glory of God? The glory of Jesus. We see Jesus and we become like Him. He, the Spirit, puts Christ's love into our hearts, Christ's nature into our hearts. Our main job as Christians is to connect to the Spirit who inhabits us. This, by the way, is what spiritual disciplines are about. You know, prayer and Bible reading and fasting and all that. The goal of prayer, brothers and sisters, is not to see how long you can pray. It is not to see how regularly you can pray. It is not to see how disciplined you can pray. The goal of prayer is intimacy with Jesus Christ through His Spirit. That's the goal. The goal of Bible reading is not to see how many Bible verses you can read in a year. It is not to see if you can get through the whole Bible in a year. It's not even, as good as it is, it's not even to see how many verses you can memorize. The goal is to let Christ's Spirit speak to us through His written Word. And you know what that means? We are not after some quota. That means if I'm reading a verse and God begins to speak to me through that verse, that means I stop right there at that verse. And I don't go any further till the Spirit's done with that verse talking to me. That means, and it could be a verse, it could be a story, it could be a mental picture, it could be one line, it could be one word. But you know, when the Spirit starts talking through the Bible, you need to stop and listen to the Spirit and not meet some quota. Because Bible study is for transformation, not just information. Spiritual disciplines are to put us in a place where God can touch us, heal us, love us, move us, teach us, guide us, reveal Himself to us, pour His love in us. I'm not supposed, to, when I read the Bible, I'm not supposed to just get smarter. I'm supposed to get closer. Closer. And guess what happens? When I get closer, I get better. Hallelujah. That's why what Paul says, he says, when we come close to Christ, we are transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. Here's a, here's, a, here's a secret of spiritual growth. We become what we behold. We do. We become what we see. With prayer and Bible study, much of our, you know, when, when we're in the Spirit, we grow to be like Jesus. And often, it is an unconscious process. For instance, a child does not decide, I will be like my father, and then goes about imitating dad with a briefcase at work. No. Rather, he absorbs his father's traits unconsciously. Because why? A, he loves his father. And B, he simply spends time with his father. When we are with Christ... Beholding Him through Scripture, through prayer, through, through, through Spirit-led imagination. Guess what happens when you hang around Jesus? You absorb His personality. You absorb His love, His righteousness, and a lot of it is automatic. Some of it will be conscious. You know, some of it will require an act of cooperation on our part. Some will not. You know, I teach parents and children's dedication class that when it comes to their kids, more is caught than taught. Did you know that? You will find without any intentional effort on your part, your kids will pick up all kinds of stuff from you, whether you like it or not. 
they behold you. And from beholding you, they become like you. That's scary, isn't it? I got news for you parents. You are being watched. You are being beheld. You know, I love sports. You know why I love sports? Because my daddy loves sports. That's why I love sports. And my father did not sit down and say, look, let me teach, son, you should love sports. Let me teach you about the importance of sports. There is teamwork and there is discipline and there is physical exercise and this will be good for you. No, I just watched my dad scream and cuss at the TV and I fell in love with sports. I love steak because my dad loves steak. And then I ate steak and I tasted and saw that the steak was good. By the way, I haven't had a steak in a while, if any of you feeling generous. I have a lot of my father in me, stuff he never tried to teach me. Thank God I got a lot of stuff from another father. But I absorbed it. If we focus on Jesus and we let the Spirit reveal him to us, we become more and more like Jesus. It is unavoidable. We see his goodness, and guess what? We're better people. We take in his love, and guess what? We become more loving. In fact, the goal is to walk with Jesus, walk in the Spirit all the time, to invite his life right into the middle of ours, into the everyday, into the ordinary, into the real stuff of life, into our jobs, into our parenting, our conflicts, our driving, our chores. You want to try something really interesting? Be driving down the road and somebody cuts you off. And instead of doing what you normally do, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit to show you what to do? The next time you're in a fight with your spouse, instead of saying what you feel like saying, why don't you stop in that moment and say, Holy Spirit, would you help me handle this right now? Because I'm about to say something really stupid that I'll pay for for a long time. Can I get an amen? You know, come on now, come on. <laughs> you see, you can learn to live life on two levels. Thomas Kelly writes, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more, more than one level at once. On one level, we may be thinking, talking, seeing, calculating, meeting the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings or divine nudges. It's called multitasking. We do it all the time. Do you do more than one thing at a time? You can do this with prayer. Right now, while I am preaching to you, I am praying. I'm in, my spirit is in contact with the Holy Spirit. And my spirit is crying out, anoint me. Help me to say the right words in the right way. Touch me. Speak through to me. And, and send out the words with power. That's going on as I preach. Some of it is conscious. Some of it is unconscious. But that's the orientation of my I'm living life on two levels right now. This way of living is a skill that can be learned. It has to be learned. That's why Paul meant about praying without ceasing. How do you pray without ceasing, without staying on your knees 24 hours a day? You learn to live life at two levels. And it's not brain surgery, but it does take practice and effort and trying again and again until it becomes a habit. I read a story where a woman in a supermarket 
saw a father with a screaming two-year-old in his grocery cart. Anybody relate to that here? We've had 50 babies in the last four years. Nobody wants to own up today. Okay. But anyway, he had this, this father was in the supermarket with this screaming two-year-old. And a woman was watching him. And he was saying in a low voice, be patient, Billy. You can handle this, Billy. It's okay, Billy. We're going to get through this, Billy. And the woman said to him, I don't mean to interrupt your shopping, but I just had to tell you how wonderfully loving and patient you are with little Billy. And the man responded, actually, my two-year-old son's name is Patrick. My name is Billy. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, if we can be in dialogue with ourselves, we can be in dialogue with God. Even in a supermarket. Even with a two-year-old. Especially with a two-year-old. No, the Spirit is in us. And He is not silent. He is pouring His nature into us. And it should change us. Jim Cimbala talks about Nicole Cruz, who grew up in Germany she had an African-American father and a German mother. They divorced. Both parents, unfortunately, died early in her life. Nicole was tall and beautiful, and she started modeling at 15. I feel like I'm reading a biography here. And she, uh, she enjoyed a lot of success in Germany. But at 25, she, she, she wanted to go big time, so she moved to Miami. But after a while... She felt like Miami was too distracting and too dangerous. So in order to get away from the danger and the distractions of the world in Miami, she moved to New York City. That'll get you away from them. Yeah. Her goal was to be a Victoria's Secret model. Her career actually took off, but she felt this emptiness inside. And someone said, why don't you go to Brooklyn Tabernacle, Jim Cimbala's church, and they have great music there. They have a gospel choir there. And she said, I've always liked music, especially black music and gospel choir. I heard it was funky and upbeat, just like our choir, funky and upbeat. You, hello, hello. Uh, uh, she attended a Sunday and something stirred within her. And before she knew it, she got good and saved. She kept going on casting calls and taking modeling assignments. But she started going to church every Sunday and Wednesday prayer meetings. And she took Bible classes. She said, but something didn't line up. Things I learned in my Bible class kept convicting me. Inside, she began to feel differently about situations which had never bothered her before. She went to a party on Halloween in 2007. There was drugs, alcohol, casual sex, and just weird stuff. And she looked around, and, and suddenly it dawned on her. I don't belong here. This is not me. And she said, I knew it was totally the Holy Spirit. Because she said, by then I wasn't doing anything wrong. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. But she said, suddenly I realized I was not where the Holy Spirit wanted me to be. And then she began to feel the Spirit prodding her in other issues. She said, one day I got dressed and looked at myself in the mirror and thought, why do these clothes look weird? I've worn these clothes for years. Why do they look weird? So she changed the way she dressed. Guess what happened? 
She was a model. She dressed like a model. Necklines started coming up. And clothes that looked like they were spray painted on started fluffing out. (laughs) And she covered more skin. Dresses went down. By the way, that is precisely our dress code at this church. It's our non-dress code. And I'm not being legalistic. I'm just saying we have three principles for dressing here. We don't want things too low. I better put my hands down. (laughs) We don't want things too low. We don't want things too high. We don't want things too tight. We do not have to be slaves to fashion, brothers and sisters. I used to be a slave to fashion, but God delivered me. (laughs) I used to wear a hat with feathers and three-piece suits and platform shoes. Why do we ask for modesty in church? I'll tell you why. For the same reason we don't serve alcohol at communion. You know why we don't serve alcohol at communion? Because there's alcoholics here. And because there are people on other substances that alcohol is a gateway drug. We we don't serve alcohol because we don't want to be a stumbling block to our brothers and sisters who are struggling with these things. Because we love each other, right? And we ask you to dress modestly here. Why? Because there are people here who are struggling with sexual addiction. And there are people here who are hooked on porn. And we want to be sensitive to them. We want them to feel like we are protecting them. Hallelujah. Now I'll give you the second reason. Second reason is this. We are here to look for the glory of Christ, not the glory of something else. We are not here to look at the glory of the body, the human body. We are here to look at something higher up. We, are, we do not want to be distracting to each other. Don't be a distraction in the name of fashion. I just made that up. It almost rhymes. I will claim it. She said, I felt God's conviction. I got rid of things in my life. I became more modest in the way I dressed. No one told me to do it, she said. It just happened. She also modeled lingerie and swimwear, bikinis. And it never bothered her. It never occurred to her that was wrong. But again, she felt this tug on her conscience. And one day she said, I was modeling lingerie, and suddenly it hit me. This is all about sex, sex, sex. She said it hadn't dawned on me before because it was just a normal part of the industry. But the Holy Spirit was telling me there was something wrong with these kinds of shoots. And on it went. Finally, she officially retired from the modeling industry. That's hard. That's hard. I remember when I did. And uh, <laughs> folks, the Holy Spirit isn't preached about much anymore because we, we're afraid it might offend. We're afraid it won't be visitor friendly. But when the Spirit starts His work, there is always a new desire for holiness. There's always a quest for Christ's likeness. When Jesus comes into your heart and life, you start to change. The Spirit was sent so we can stay connected to the resurrected Christ. And it is He who changes us. You know, Jesus gave commands that were utterly impossible. Did you know that? He said, I want you to love each other like I love you. Impossible! Who here can love like Jesus? I can't. But guess what? The Holy Spirit can. Hallelujah. You know, I can't produce the fruit of humility As soon as I start thinking about how humble I am, I get proud. 
or self-control or any of the spirit fruit. But Jesus can through His Spirit. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Abide in me and I in you and you will automatically produce fruit. It's His job to produce fruit. It's our job to be connected and then the fruit will come. Anytime you see spirit fruit growing, it is receiving nourishment from beyond itself. Our job is to receive what the Spirit gives, to connect and to see what Jesus will do and what He will make us into. Because the Spirit's goal is nothing less than to make us like Jesus. And Jesus is the most beautiful person who ever lived and who ever existed. I want to be like Jesus. Jesus who was without sin and yet was the most loving and approachable person who ever walked the earth. Everyone loved Him, especially sinners loved Him. I, I, I want to be free from the slavery of sin. And you know what the Bible just, I read this morning? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I don't want anything controlling me. I don't want to be in anything's cage or kept in bondage. I don't want to live in fear of discovery or fear of condemnation. I don't want to live like that. I want to be free. And the Lord makes you free, the Spirit. And so I conclude with this. Are you living by the Spirit or are you living by law? It makes all the difference in the world. Are you living by the Spirit or are you living by self-effort trying to clean up your act? You will fail. Are you living by the Spirit or by flesh? Are you Spirit-filled and beholding what He is showing? It starts with worship and prayer and Scripture. But, but please hear this. In order to grow in goodness, you must first behold He who is good. Because beholding turn, goes next into becoming. And becoming then precedes doing. We usually do it backwards. We go, I will do this, and then I will become this, and then I will behold this. It's totally backwards. And so we end this sermon by simply asking. Here's, I want to give you one last chance today to interact with the Spirit. So here's what we're going to do. I want you to close your eyes, bow your heads, and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to give you a direct word this morning about your life. And I don't want you to be afraid. I want you to take a small risk. Nobody's going to check on you. But I want you to ask the Spirit to give you a word right now. Just open your mind and your heart and see what the Spirit gives you. Now what I want you to do is to make a commitment that for the next week you will interact with the Spirit about what He gave you. What does it mean? How do I do this? Do I have the power to do this? Show me 
what this means in my life, Jesus, and help me to obey what you've led me to, Spirit. That's your homework assignment, okay? If you didn't get a word or something this morning, then I want you to pray till you get a word and then do what I just said, okay? The Spirit is moving. You've got to open yourself up to the Spirit. But a lot of people are scared. Take a chance. Take a small risk. The Spirit is moving. Do you want the Spirit operating in your life, yes or no? Open yourself up to His filling. Let the Spirit move in the weeks to come. Amen? Start small. The Spirit, once you give the Spirit a crack, He'll just take you somewhere. You don't have to worry about that. Okay? Now there is one more thing we need to do before we leave today. And I held it to the end because we wanted you to worship the Lord and hear His Word. But there is something difficult I need to share with you this morning. We found out this week that Pastor Linda has breast cancer. And we're going to ask her to come up and pray for her in a little bit. But she has triple negative breast cancer, which means the kind of cancer she's dealing with is very aggressive. She's going to have, on November the 10th, bilateral uh, mastectomy. And then after approximately six weeks of recuperating from that, she will have to go into chemotherapy. And the kind of, and it's the same kind of cancer that Pastor Cedra had. And so they're going to use what they affectionately know in oncology as RED. And RED is a very powerful drug that will, puts anybody who takes it through it, you know. And then after that, there will be significant radiation therapy. This whole process from surgery to the end of the treatment will take six months, just as it did with Pastor Cedra. Now, we don't know what, some people are going, what stage is it? And the answer is we don't know if it's in stage one, two, three, or four. Because until they do surgery, until they do some of the body scans after surgery and check lymph nodes and stuff, you don't know till that happens. But what we do know is that our God heals. We have Pastor Cedra sitting on the front row cancer-free because our God heals, okay? And we're going to pray because some of us love Pastor Linda. All of us love Pastor. I was expecting to be corrected, and Pastor Cedra really jumped to the floor. <laughs> but we're going to pray for her. Uh, and, you know, we're going to ask for a miracle. But if a miracle doesn't come, we're going to ask for healing anyway. But we are going to pray. We have, I have preference here. <laughs> Pastor Linda has preference here. So I'm going to ask Pastor Linda to come to the front. And we're going to anoint Pastor Linda with oil and pray for her. And I would like to invite anyone who would like to come to the front and join with us in prayer as we lay hands on her to come forward. And if you can't lay hands on her, lay hands on the ones laying hands on her. And we're going to pray because the battle is going to be long and the battle is going to be hard unless there's a miracle. But we're going to pray for a miracle first, okay?
Lord, we anoint Pastor Linda with oil in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for Pastor Linda. Lord, she has meant so much to this congregation for so long. And she is a beloved person here. But we know you love her more. We know you love her more. And now, Lord, in your name, we pray for her healing. We pray for her complete and utter healing in the name of Jesus. And, Lord, if you have a miracle for her, we claim that miracle right now in the name of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that she doesn't have to go through six months of what was described. We pray, Lord, Lord, that we, and it would bring such glory to you, Jesus, if you would do it. It would just send a, a shot of, of faith and invigoration, Lord. I'm, I'm just giving a suggestion here, Lord. But you said we have not because we ask not. So, Lord, we're asking. We're asking for a miracle in Jesus' name. We're asking that, Lord, you remove this cancer from her body. In Jesus' name, Lord, not only for her, but for the kingdom and the glory it would bring. And Lord, if there is not a miracle, then we pray for wisdom for the doctors. We pray, Lord, for strength in Pastor Linda to endure. We pray again for utter and total healing. Lord, you choose the way you want to heal. But again, we pray for total healing. Lord, we pray not only for Linda's body, we pray for her spirit. This will be tough. This is scary stuff. And Lord, I pray that you will strengthen her in her inner being. I pray, Lord Jesus, you will give her courage. I pray she will have such a sense of your presence in her life that you will be surrounded by your presence and your love and that all fear will be driven out. We pray this in your name. And Lord, we pray for Craig and Corey and Ryan, who in many ways this is every bit as scary for them. Lord, I pray that you give them peace and that you give them, Lord, a sense of your presence and love in their lives too. Lord, we give this, all of this, we give this total situation over to you. We give it to you, Lord. You are good and you are God. And Lord, we know what you can do and we pray you will do it. And so, Lord, get them through this, all of them through us. And get us as a church through this, Jesus. Because, Lord, you know how much we have grown to depend on, Pastor Linda, for so many things. And, Lord, get us through the things that she can't do in the next six months. But above all, Jesus, may love grow here. May your presence be manifest here in her, in her family, in this church. May, Lord, may this not break us but draw us closer. May this increase our faith, not decrease our faith. Lord, we give this to you. We ask for a miracle. But Lord, if there is no miracle, we ask for healing. Heal our sister and be with her and her family through this journey. And God's people say, amen, amen. and amen. Amen. amen.